0: john chapter five um, we've come to to verse thirty thirty nine through the end of the chapter before we 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 read the text though i I'd, I'd like to um to summarize what's taken place um, at least a little bit in the, in this chapter we we come to a, a chapter in, in which it, it begins with this man who has been paralyzed for thirty eight years and the Lord just works. In, in an incredible way to, to heal him, rise, take up your bed, and walk, and so he does. He gets up, first time in thirty-eight years. Gets up. I mean, you, you think of of the joy of of what must have occurred in that man's heart as he. Who laid there for 38 years. Depended upon everybody for 38 years. To to hear Christ say. Arise. Take up your bed and walk. And all of the strength goes into his legs. First time in 38 years. He stands up. Takes up his bed. And just. Can't believe what has happened to him. Only to find all the religious leaders that are around saying, who told you to take up your bed and walk? It's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry a bed. Them looking at it saying, you're breaking the rules. You're carrying a bed. And he said, "No, He just, the one who told me to rise up also told me to take up my bed and walk. So I did it. This man immediately goes to the temple just to to worship. God works in incredible ways here, and yet those that were the most religious people are those that are seeking to kill him, we're told in verse sixteen. Um, they begin persecuting Jesus and seek to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. From there you you look and you see the Lord presenting himself to them as God. Showing these religious leaders who it is that says, take up your bed and walk. That he is the one that has always existed. He's always been with the Father. And the more that he is telling them who he is, his deity, the more angry all of the people are becoming, especially the religious leaders. And so we look and we come to um, the continuation of what he is speaking to these people in verse 39. We looked at the first couple of verses here briefly last week, but let's read it in its context. In John five thirty-nine, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another? And do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We, we come to a text in which Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders, speaking to those who are so angry because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. And he says to them, you search the scriptures. You know the scriptures. I mean, they, these guys, they knew the scriptures. They would go through the Old Testament. They would memorize the Old Testament. They would go through those that were the scribes, those that, were, those that would rewrite it. They would write one word and then look at the next one and then write that word, making sure that there was absolutely no chance of making a mistake as they transcribed the word. They would go through and they, they knew all of the details of what it said in God's word. He says, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. All of these things are pointing to me. They're talking about me. This last summer, our family had a, the joy of, of going to Africa together. And we went to Zimbabwe for Keegan and Amy's wedding to, so I could officiate that and we could be there for that. And you, you ought not to go to Zimbabwe without going to Victoria Falls. Um, it's one of those, those places where it's this, this waterfall that's just absolutely incredible to see. And when you go there, they, they have it set up to where um, you can't see the waterfall unless you go through and you pay the fee. And they have fences all over the place. And so you, you have to go through this entrance. And you have to pay some um, high fee to be able to go in, to be able to get a ticket, to be able to go see the waterfall. And as, as you go in, you you walk in, and there's little shops that sell stuff. And then there's this this wall that tells you all kinds of information about the waterfalls. Just look, and there's a big map that's there that's been drawn um, I- I- as far as um, w- w- one that there, there, there's a picture there. It gives you 17 different s- spots to go. It, it it says on it that, that this is the, uh, um, the footpath, the Victoria Falls footpath guide. And so it tells you this is where to walk. This is what to do. This is all you're supposed to do. And so we went in and we l- started looking at these things. We looked at the, the picture and saw where everything was and where we're supposed to walk and, and it tells you all kinds of information about the waterfall. It tells you that its um, width is, is 5,604 feet. Its height is 354 feet. It's not the, the tallest waterfall in the world and it's not the widest waterfall in the world but it is the biggest waterfall in the world. And so you look at this, and and it, it it's over twice the the height of Niagara Falls. Um, it, it the the face of it is just incredible. As far as when you look at the map, you can see how big this place is. This waterfall is. It tells you that in on November sixteenth of eighteen fifty five, David Livingston, the Scottish missionary, was the one who who went there and and was the first European to find it, to find this waterfall. And there's a statue of him there. Before you actually get to the waterfall, you see a statue of great missionary David Livingston. And you look at this and, and, and you, you think about how big it is. And there's a picture of a rainbow that's there. And you could look at all these things, but what a shame it would be to be there and to be one who works at, that little gate that takes the ticket. One who could tell you all about the map that is there, the 17 points, walk here, you're going to go down this way, you'll see a rainbow here, you know, and you knew everything about this particular waterfall. You had that little um, drawn-out map memorized, and yet you never actually went to see the waterfall. You never actually went to see what it was that was there. You look in and you see these religious leaders and they are like that. They, they are there. They, they're collecting the money. They're there. They've, they have their merchandise there to be sold. They're there and they can tell you everything about the Torah. Everything about God's word. They have all of the signs that are there pointing to the Messiah who was to come. There are those that were the religious rulers. They had set up boundaries and laws so that that all of the people would follow and do all that they had said to do. And yet Jesus is here talking with them saying, you you search the scriptures. You look at the scriptures. You know the scriptures. You think that in that you have life. You look and, 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 and you're looking at the map. You think it ends there. You're proud of your knowledge there. But all that map does is testify of me. It's all pointing to me. It's all pointing you to a place of finding me, the Messiah, who was to come. But he says, but you were not willing to come to me that you might have life. You weren't willing to come. You know all of these things, but you were not willing to. To come to me. I do not receive honor from men. But I know you. That you do not have the love of God in you. You, Your hearts. I know them. He's saying. I know exactly what it is that's going on in your hearts. He can look at. The crowd of people and all of those who are wanting to persecute him and and angry about him healing somebody on the Sabbath and those that would be those that carried themselves in such a way as far as wearing the robes and showing that they are the ones that are the most powerful. And he's saying, I, I know exactly what it is that's going on in your heart. And you don't have the love of God in you. There's those that, that, that know so much about God's word in the church today. They could go through and they can recite scripture. They know scripture. They could go through and tell you so many of the prophecies that are pointing ahead to Christ. Sometimes you find people where, where they could tell you almost anything about end times. I mean, they're just they're, they're the end times experts. They know all that's going on as far as in the world today. They may have another hobby horse as far as what it is that they study. They love history, so they know all of the history of what's going on in the Bible and what has happened throughout history. And yet, Jesus might look upon that person and say, but I know you. I know you. You do not have the love of God in you. You search the scriptures. You think that that is an end in itself, but they're all pointing to me, and you've never gone there you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you'll receive. You'll come, you'll receive others that are those that would be false messiahs. You'll receive others that come, but me, you will not receive. How can you believe? You who receive honor from one another. How can you believe? You you guys are the ones that look and say, man, you know, you know scripture well. You're the ones that blow your trumpet. Look at how much I'm giving. I'm giving this much. You're the ones that say, I keep the law in its entirety. You're the ones that say, I give this much. I always give a 10th of everything that I have. You're the ones that open the windows and 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 pray. You're the ones that pray so everybody could hear you. Everybody could think that you're so holy for your many words. You're the ones that do all of these things. You're the ones that stand and say I thank God that I'm not like other men. You're the ones that are so proud and you love to receive honor from other people but you don't seek the honor that comes from the only God. You don't seek the honor that comes from me. You You say one thing with your mouths, you draw near to me with your mouths, but your hearts are so far from me, the Lord says to these people. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. He says to these people, don't think that I'm going to accuse you, there's one that's going to accuse you. It's Moses. And these guys hearing this would have heard this and thought, what are you talking about, Moses? I mean, you... The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we know the first five books of the Bible. We know everything about the first five books of the Bible. And you're saying, you're not the one that's going to accuse us, but it's going to be Moses? Moses is the one who, who's going to accuse me to the Father? Moses, the one that we trust, the one that we love, the one that we talk about all the time, the one who is our national hero, you're talking about Moses is the one that's going to accuse us? Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, Imagine Jesus saying this to these guys. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me. When he was writing, he was writing about me. When they were making the picture there, the map that was there, at Victoria Falls, they were making the map so that you would go and look at the falls. It was done in such a way that you could know where the walking paths were, know where the 17 spots were. You're looking at this. You see it. He's writing about me. You're studying Moses' writings, but you don't believe him. You say that you believe him, but if you had believed him, then you would have believed me because he's writing all about me. But you do not believe these things. You don't believe his writings. How will you believe my words? If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Look, and and Jesus has spoken to them in such a way in which he is showing the wickedness that's in their hearts and how far they are from him. We go through and, and, and read the, the writings of Moses. You could go through from beginning to end, beginning in Genesis, and going all the way through and look at it. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Going through and reading, it, and Jesus is just saying, all that is there, it's all testifying of me. It's all being written about me. To give you some examples, imagine all that took place in the Exodus. Turn with me in, in your Bibles to in the book of Exodus to chapter 12 for a moment. Now you remember in, in the book of Exodus, we find that God's people are in in slavery under the Egyptians. Um, God calls Moses, um, works miraculously, has them be placed there in that little little basket, that little ark and sent down the river and he grows up in in Pharaoh's house and all that takes place and and you come to a place where He's called upon the Pharaoh to let God's people go. And the Pharaoh has no desire to let God's people go. And then plagues start taking place. Plague after plague after plague after plague after plague. Nine plagues take place. Just brutal plagues upon the Egyptians. And still they will not let God's people go. And then there comes that point in which the final plague is coming, and the final plague that's coming upon the Egyptians is that the firstborn in every house is going to be put to death. In every single home, the firstborn is going to be put to death. And we look at this, and and, and we see this plague, and see what's taking place, and our hearts hear this and just think, okay, why, why is this thing, I mean, Why didn't they repent with the lice? Or why didn't they repent with the locust? Or why didn't they repent with the frogs? Or why didn't they repent when the water turned to blood? Why didn't they repent with all of these other things, the flies that came upon them? Why would they not repent? And and, and you just see hardness of heart and hardness of heart and hardness of heart to where finally you come to where it's, okay, the firstborn in every household is going to be put to death. Look at chapter 12 and verse 3. This is what's told. To Moses, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it, according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall... Make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do you not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall not you, know, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt. On your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's the instruction that's giving, that's been given. Now imagine what's taking place here. You you have all that has occurred in in let my people go. Plague after plague after plague after plague after plague go by, and and I will not let your people go. Finally, This is what's going to happen. The firstborn in every house is going to be put to death. And then God goes through and gives instruction to the people. Now now picture these people. Millions of people, they're there. And here it is that, that Moses is supposed to give them this particular instruction. We just read through it. There's just incredible detail that's given. Here's what you're going to do. On this particular day, you're going to take a lamb. On this particular day, you're going to kill the lamb. This is what that lamb has to be like. It has to be without spot or blemish. It has to be a male of the first year. It has to be your best. Can't have any spot or blemish on it. This is what you're supposed to do with it. This is how you're to kill it. Here's all of the details of what you're supposed to do. You're going to take some of the blood of that particular animal. You're going to take the blood of that that lamb that doesn't have spot or blemish and you're going to put it on the doorpost that's there. Put it on the doorpost. When I pass over, when they come to execute judgment on all of the people in the land, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. You're looking and they're hearing this. It doesn't say, when I pass over and I see the Egyptians. The Egyptians, their firstborn, will be put to death. It doesn't say it. It says, all in the land of Egypt. That would be the Israelites included in it. There's a judgment that's going to come upon all of the land. The only way that you could ever escape this judgment that's going to kill the firstborn in every household is to make it so that you need to take a lamb without spot or without blemish you need to kill it kill it you have to kill it you have to take the blood you got to put it on the doorpost it didn't matter it it didn't matter whose house it was It didn't matter if you were those that were of the tribe of Benjamin. It didn't matter if you were of the tribe of Judah. It didn't matter what tribe you were a part of. It didn't matter if you were circumcised on the eighth day. It didn't matter what it was that took place. It didn't matter how Often you went to the temple. It didn't matter how good of a husband you were. It didn't matter how good of a wife you were. It didn't matter how good of a kid you were. It didn't matter how big your house was. It didn't matter how well you had saved. It didn't matter how nice you were to your neighbors. All that mattered was did you put the door on the door po- or the, the blood on the doorpost? That's what's given to them. Put the blood on the doorpost. When I pass over that house, When I see the blood, I'll pass over that house and the judgment won't come upon that house. The difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites wasn't a moral difference. It wasn't that God looked and said, Egyptians are horrible, Israelites are wonderful. They were all sinners, every one of them. It wasn't a moral difference as far as this is why I'm going to save the Israelites. It's because they're so moral. The only thing that was going to be that which caused the, the Israelites to be saved was blood on the doorposts. It had to be there. And so you look at this and you see what's taking place. And Jesus is saying, look at the writings of Moses. He's writing about me. And you have the Israelites there that are looking at it saying... We do all these things. I mean, we we execute this perfectly. We know all the details. We make rules. We make the the sheep come and get inspected by the leaders within the the synagogue. They have to come. They have to come and get inspected there at the temple. And we'll sell them ones that already been pre-inspected and we'll make tons of money from it. And this is all that's going to take place. You come and we have all the details and we'll tell you exactly how to do it. And yet, as much details as they knew... And for however many thousands of years they had executed these things, Jesus is saying, you missed the point of it all. It was all pointing towards me. You look at what's taking place here at the, the Exodus and, and what's taking place with the Passover, and you would think, like, why all the details? I mean, honestly, like, if, if, if we had this group of people saying, okay, here, here's the deal, we're leaving Southern California tonight. Here's the details. Okay? We're, we're going to leave. We're, we're going into the wilderness. We're, we're, we're going to go. We're going to go through the Red Sea. This is how it's going to work. And get your stuff. You're never coming back here again. So pack up. Let's go. You, you would probably be in a place of like, oh, there's so much to do. There's so much to do. I never can come back here again. I got, what am I going to take with me? I got so much to that. I want to take pictures. I, you, I mean, you're going to go through, and you're going to pack, and you're going to want to do all that you need to do to leave Southern California because you know you're going to end up in Arizona. And, and, and you're looking and thinking, this is what's going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm leaving here. And this, this is where I'm going to. And the last thing that you're probably going to want is, okay, now here's the details. Go find a lamb. It's got to be a perfect one. It's got to be one without any blemish at all. You're going to take it, and you've got to kill it. You have to kill it. You've got to kill it. Then you're going to take the blood. You're going to put it on the doorpost. You're going to roast it with fire. You're going to eat all of it. You've got to make sure that not one of its bones is broken. Don't break any of its bones. You've got to make sure you don't break the bones. It tells us in Exodus 12, 46. Don't break one of its bones. Here's the details. Here's all the details of what you're supposed to do. And they go and they do it, but they are missing out completely in the fact that it is all pointing to Christ. It's all pointing to him. There's all these details that are given, and the reason that he gives the details isn't to make them so they're really busy on the day that they got to leave their homes. It's to point all of these people to Christ. Moses is writing about Christ. We go through and we we see it in 1 Corinthians 5-7 where it says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We see it in, in Hebrew, or Ephesians 5.2 where it says, Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Hebrews 9.26, But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All that's taking place there in the Passover is pointing to Christ. The one who John the Baptist looks at and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The one in whom those that are putting him to death say, I find no fault in him. The one who was tempted in all things yet without sin. The one who's there as a, a sheep before those that are sharing in a silence, so Christ didn't open his mouth. You, you, you look and all of the details are pointing to Christ, the one that would come and the one who would become that sacrifice for us so that when God came and looked upon us, what would he see? When, when we deserve the judgment, just like the Egyptians the, deserve the judgment, when the angel's passing over and we deserve to go to eternity and hell just like everybody in the history of this world deserves to spend eternity in hell, what is it that saves us? Is it that we're more moral or that we have bigger houses or that we've been good husbands or good wives or good kids? What is it that saves us? It's the same that saves us as that which saved them and that is the blood. There has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And it had to be a lamb without spot or blemish. It had to be Christ who would become that Passover lamb for us. It had to be him. And Jesus is looking and they painted a picture. I mean, through Exodus, he painted a picture of this is what it's going to be like. I mean, even before that, you see Adam and Eve sin in the garden. And what happens? They're naked and they're hiding themselves. And God says, who told you that you were naked? And they're there and they've covered themselves with fig leaves. And God comes and, and takes those fig leaves and instead makes them tunics out of animals that have been killed. An animal that had been killed so that, so that those skins, those skins that were once covering an animal, an animal that was killed is now the covering that's to hide the nakedness of Adam and Eve, because there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. Why did God accept Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering? Because one brought that which was of the fruit offering, the other brought that which was was of a blood offering, an animal sacrifice, a lamb. You go through it all, all of these things are pointing to Christ to come. Exodus is just laid out so clearly for us. This has to happen. It has to be like this. And Christ is looking and saying, it's all pointing to me, all of it. But you, you will not come that you might have life. It's all testifying of me, but you don't even see it. You, you just, you, you want to kill me for healing someone on the Sabbath when all of these things are pointing to me. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me. I mean, you look and you think, why kill the lamb? I mean, why kill it? Why, why not just? Make a slight incision, take some of the blood, and put it on the doorpost. And the reason why is because there had to be that propitiation. There had to be that payment. There had to be the atonement. There had to be something that was killed, an innocent thing that was killed, so that there would be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. But it was all pointing ahead to Christ. And Christ is saying, you missed it. We see in Romans three twenty three, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now you look through faith it had to happen. You take the Israelites. They could have taken the animal the right day, killed it, on the right day, took one without blemish, male, the first year, killed it. But if they looked and said, well, we did most of it. We're not going to take the blood and put it on the doorpost. I mean, I just painted that doorpost. I'm not going to put blood all over the doorpost. They could have looked and said, I I did most everything, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to put the blood on the doorpost. What would have happened when the angel came over? That death angel, the, the firstborn in that house would have been killed for sure. You have to appropriate it has to be where you take the blood and you go out and you put the blood on the doorpost yourself. You got to put the blood on the doorpost. You have to. Likewise for us, you must believe to be saved. I mean, you look at Christ has died for us. His blood has been shed for us, but We must believe. We must come to him in faith. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. There must be faith that is accompanied by it. And so you go through and you look and it's all pointing to Christ. You go from there and you look at other parts in the book of Exodus. There's God's people turn with me to Exodus 16 in verse 2. Exodus sixteen two. The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the, post of, or by the pots of meat, and, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the, this, this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have manna. I'm going to have manna fall down from heaven. I'm going to have manna It's going to land there every day. It's going to be white, symbolizing purity. It's going to be sweet, and they're going to have it, and they can go every day and get it, and they can eat it. In John 6, 32, it says this Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. Moses didn't give you that bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. What is Jesus saying? The manna came down. God God is the one that sent the manna down. God sent it down. Moses didn't send it down. God sent it down. In the same way, God sent me down. I am the manna. I am the bread of life. I am the one that's white. I am the one that's pure. I am the one that you can take and eat of. And I'm there for you daily, I'm there for you always, and you will never, ever hunger again. When it talked about the manna, it was talking about me. We go through and and we see it again in, in John 6, 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead this is the bread which comes down from heaven, the one that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. I am the bread, it's my flesh, I am giving it to you. Whoever believes in me has everlasting life. Whoever eats of me, whoever trusts in Christ completely has everlasting life. It was all pointing to me. When Moses was writing those things, he was talking about me and you've missed it all. You don't see it. You look at Exodus 17 in verse 2, if you'll turn there. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said give us water that we may drink so Moses said to them why do you contend with me why do you tempt the lord and the lord and, and the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said why is it that you've brought us up out of egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, "What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me." And the Lord said to Moses, "Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go, and behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and the water will come out of it that the people may drink." And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Well, they're so thirsty. He takes this rod, and what was the rod used for? It was used to execute judgment over and over again. You see the rod being used for the purpose of executing judgment. He says, take that rod and go and strike the rock. Now, you may look at that and think, like, what? like why? Just show me where the river is. Just show me. Tell me where to dig a hole. I don't need to go hit a rock. It's ridiculous. I mean, which one of us would ever think like, oh, there, and, you know, find a boulder and hit it, and that's where you're going to get a drink of water. Nobody would ever think that way. Take that rod, go and strike it, and yet God's saying, this is what I want you to do. Go, take that rod, the one that was used to execute judgment. Take it, go, hit the rock, and when you hit the rock, water's going to come out, and they'll be able to drink Why? Why? Why say something like that? Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. For he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We look and we think of it. Why? Why strike the rock with that rod of judgment? The reason why is because Christ is the rock. Christ is the one that got struck with the judgment. Christ was the one that was smitten by God. He was the one that received that. It was pointing to the cross. It was pointing to Christ who was to come, that he would be the one that would be smitten by God, by the judgment. All of the judgment that we deserve would be placed upon Christ there upon the cross. We see it in... Again, in, in, in 1 Corinthians ten one through 4 Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It was Christ. The rock that was spinning, it was Christ. That rock was Christ. And so Christ is saying, it all was pointing to me. It was all looking to me. The reason why he struck the rock was because it was pointing to the cross that was to come. All of the Old Testament, everything that Moses wrote was pointing towards me. It was all a map towards me. And you don't come to me that you might have life. You think that you have life because you know these things, but the love of God is not in you. All of the facts are there. You're the ones that are there at the gate. You're collecting the money. You're telling people where to go, but you have never seen me. You don't know me. All of the facts are there. You have all of the information, and yet you have missed me completely. The tabernacle. We see that it goes from there in the book of Exodus. talks about the tabernacle. What's with the tabernacle? Why the tabernacle? When we look in John 1.14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is he tabernacled amongst us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, and the glory was of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see it again in Revelation 21, three. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Just as the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling place that the Lord had for the people before the temple was there, likewise Jesus came to earth and tabernacled with us for 30 years. He is the tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. All of it was pointing to him. You have the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant's there, and it's God's presence with them. What do they have to make the ark of the covenant with? It's made with wood and gold. Make it with wood and gold. Why? Because it's pointing to Christ's humanity and to His deity. Wood and gold. You go through and you look and you see what's taking place there, and God says, "Take, make a mercy seat. Make it out of pure gold." Gives them all the details of what's supposed to take place with this mercy seat. Take the mercy seat and, and have it be where the high priest goes in and he's going to sprinkle the mercy seat with blood. Have it be where he sprinkles it with blood seven times. Sprinkle it with blood. The blood of a, a lamb that was without spot or blemish. Use that blood and go and sprinkle it. And this is what you're going to need to do. And you're going to need to go and you're going to do this and there's going to be the cherub that are around and the judgment that would become upon it. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is going to be the tablets of the law. One of the things that's going to be there is going to be the tablets of the law. And so when you have the tablets of the law as far as this is what you must do, whoever breaks this will surely die. You go and you you look at this. On top of that is the mercy seat. On top of that is those which execute judgment. God himself is up there on top of it. And you look and there's this pure gold mercy seat that is there. Sprinkled with blood. And the only reason why it's there, the only reason God pointed to it and said, this is what you must do, take blood and sprinkle it. I mean, you would think, like, why put blood on gold? I mean, you can't even, you can't see the gold anymore. You see blood that's been splattered all over it. Why do that? And the reason why is because it was all pointing to Christ. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth As a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation is the exact same word that's used for a mercy seat. It's the mercy seat. He is the mercy seat. He is the propitiation. By what? His blood. His blood is sprinkled there upon the mercy seat through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. I mean, nobody would have ever gone into the the Holy of Holies. The high priest would never go into the Holy of Holies and go and, and be there and have the thing tied to his ankle and go there and sprinkle the blood and do all these things thinking like, I deserve to be here. No one went in there with pride. I was mean, just like, okay, like, I am terrible. My people are terrible. We've all sinned. Blood. I'm going to do exactly what you do. tell me to do. I'm going to sprinkle the blood there on the mercy seat. And the reason why it was all pointing to Christ, our propitiation, that he is the mercy seat. His blood was shed. So when God looks at us and his judgments to come upon us and there is that which is the law that's there in the ark, that which is the law that's there, we look in. Before he sees the law, he sees the mercy seat, and the mercy seat is Christ, and his blood is covering it. And we broke the law, but the payment was done and complete to where when God sees it, he sees that the wrath that we deserve was placed upon his son to where his blood has been shed, the one that has been the substitute for us, to where we can now enter into holy of holies boldly. You look and you see the veil that's there. there's a veil that's there, and you look, and you see, in Exodus 26:31, 30, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of the acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp. And, and then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and, and the most holy. And so you have this divider, this veil that's there. He gives them incredible detail. It needs to be this thick. I mean, it's a thick piece of, of, of woven material and it's gotta be gold in it and it's precious and it's hanging there and make it so that it's there. It's there between you and the holy of holies. And so here is this veil and, They're just, okay, 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 I'll I'll make the veil, we'll do it. Someone that can make cherubim, make it look beautiful. I mean, we're going to do it exactly the way that he said. And then you come to the cross, and what takes place? Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Why do the veil there in the temple? Because there was going to come a time when Christ was going to die on the cross. And when he did, the veil would be rent in two. It would be torn in two. And how would it be torn in two? From top to bottom. Why would it be from top to bottom rather than from bottom to top? Because it is God who tore that veil in half. It was all pointing to Christ. It was all pointing so they could look. And you and I could be here this morning and look and say, Okay, I used to not be able to come into the Holy of Holies. I used to not be able to do it. But now... The mercy seat has the blood of Christ that is upon it and the law has been fulfilled in Christ and he fulfilled all righteousness and he made the atonement for me and my sins are forgiven and that veil God tore it from top to bottom to where now I can approach His throne boldly not because of my own righteousness but because of the righteousness of Christ and all of that was pointing to the fact that God is holy and we are not and God made the sacrifice so that we can enter into the kingdom by faith through the blood of Christ for all eternity. And we look at this, and Jesus is saying, you missed it. You're missing it. It's all pointing to me. All of it's pointing to me. The serpent on the pole. The serpent, these serpents, these fiery serpents, go and they start biting the people of Israel in Numbers 21. Take the serpent. Go make, make a serpent, God says. All these people are dying all over this. God says to Moses, "Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, shall live." So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So snakes biting everybody. God says, "Take take a bronze serpent, put it in the middle of the camp. All your people are dying from all these fiery serpents because the judgment's coming, and just." If they get bit, just tell them to go look at this bronze serpent in the middle of the camp. Just look at it, and you'll be saved. You'll live. Seems like a ridiculous thing to do. You're thinking, no, I mean, like, okay, I'm going to cut it. I'll suck out the poison. I'll spit it out. I'll, here's what we'll... No, God says just take the bronze serpent. Put it there. Just look at it. And then what are we told? John three fourteen. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, have eternal life. It was all pointing to Christ. The serpent, it's pointing to Christ. Look at him. Believe in him. He became sin for us. It's not a matter of our works or what we could do. It is looking to Christ, our Savior. And Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up as he hung there on the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ is saying, everything that Moses wrote, it was all pointing towards me. All of it. And So let's apply this for us this morning as we close. By the way, in case you're curious, we could go on for about another four days of just going through this and pointing over and over again to all of these pointing to Christ. I just had time for a few. But what about us? Um, See, see, we we have all of Moses' writings that will accuse us. We have more than that. We have all of the Bible that would accuse us. I mean, if you sit here this morning and you're an unbeliever, and you say, like, oh, was, you know, there's just so many hypocrites in the church. Or I knew someone was a Christian once, and psh, man, they were one of the worst people I ever knew. I'm not going to believe in that. And God would just say, like, it's not me that's going to accuse you. It's Moses that's going to accuse you. It's my word that's going to accuse you. All of the evidence that will accuse you. I mean, you look and you see it is all there. And yet Jesus might say to you this morning, but you were not willing to come to me that you might have life. Paul, when he was preaching in Athens in Acts 17, verse 30, says to the people there, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. There will come a day an appointed day on which Christ will judge the world in righteousness. He will. And where will you be found? Um Caused him to rise again from the dead. I mean, you could take all of the law of Moses, all of his writings. You could take all of the prophets. You can go all of scripture through scripture and see everything pointing to Christ. You can see all of the miracles. You can hear the testimony of John the Baptist. You can look at all of the scriptures and see it all pointing to Christ. But you could also look at the resurrection. He rose again from the dead. You have it all. He rose again from the dead. He appeared to 5,000 people at one time. He appeared to the disciples. They all went out and died for their faith in Christ. They saw him. They saw him. He, He died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. And he will come on an appointed day and he will judge the world in righteousness. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere To repent. To repent. I pray to God that there would not be one person here this morning that leaves this place not saved. You're here for a reason. You could have all kinds of knowledge. But do you know him? Is your faith in him? Do you hope in him? Is your salvation sourced in he died and fulfilled all righteousness and then took all of your sins upon himself when he died. And your only hope, your only assurance, is that when God comes to judge the world, he will see the blood of Christ over you, and you clothed with robes of righteousness, because your hope, your faith, is in him. And whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. Radical. Radical. I pray to God that there's just clarity that comes to each and every person here this morning. And for us as believers, may we just adore our Savior as we close in worship. Amen.